let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so good. We come humbly to your word, Lord, and we receive the blessings and the promises therein. You are a high priest, Jesus. You love and care for us. We are not strangers. We are children of the living God. You've promised to take care of us. Lord, I pray that we will be able to see that truth here today. Lord, may you increase, may I decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. Who or what is your comforter? Who or what is your comforter? See, that's the question that I want you to consider this morning in the back of your mind while we go through this passage. I've been learning a lot about myself recently. I've cut out a couple things of my diet, and I've learned that one of my comforters is food. I really love pizza. I'm from New Jersey. We love pizza over there. And after I started cutting out pizza, I started to notice that I actually had an emotional relationship with pizza. Don't, Don't laugh like you don't. And so... I started to notice that every time I needed some sort of comfort, when I didn't feel comfortable, when I felt like there was a situation out of my hands, I had to look for something. So it would be pizza or ice cream or fries or anything of that nature. But food is a bad comforter. It really is. The more you have of food, the more it wreaks havoc on your life. Think about it. If you ate ice cream for every meal, every day, You'd have some serious health problems. Not to mention, your spiritual health will decline a lot. Because instead of you going to the throne of grace for comfort, you go to the ice cream. Because the ice cream makes you feel good in the moment. But you see, food and any other comforts on this, in this planet is a bad comforter. Its relief is momentary. And its encouragement is illusory. It's an illusion. But we actually have a true comforter. We have a comforter who we can come to. And the more we come to this comforter, there is no adverse effect. (laughs) We can come to Jesus Christ. And, and, And the beauty of this, this is why we're going through the book of Hebrews. Because we forget this. And when life gets hard, it's easy to just grab onto whatever comforter you can find near you. That's why we've been saying that the thesis, essentially, of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater than anything 
So don't let go of him. So if you're here and you're needy, and you're looking for comfort for your dry soul, we have an ultimate comforter, and his name is Jesus, and he offers rest for your weary soul. So if there's anything you remember today, I hope it's this. All you who are needy, cling to Christ, and he will give you ultimate comfort. All you who are needy, cling to Christ, and he will give you ultimate comfort. We're going to see that in this passage. In verse 14, we're going to see how Jesus Christ is our high priest and how comforting that is. Then we're going to see how Jesus comforts us in verse 15. And in verse 16, the author of Hebrews invites us to draw near. In other words, to cling to Christ for comfort. First, let's start with verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. See, the author of the Hebrews is speaking to a specific audience. These are Jewish Christians in the first century. And so for them, they came out of Judaism. They came out of a sacrificial system. See, God had set up a sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And the priesthood, priests, were very key in that. If you wanted to worship God and offer sacrifices to God, you went to the priests. And in that way, the priests would do the sacrifice and declare the forgiveness of God. And then on top of that, there's a high priest. He's almost like the head priest. And his role is to represent the people of Israel to God on the Day of Atonement. You may have seen this thing on your calendar called Yom Kippur, and you kind of get off for it, and you're like, oh, cool. But if you don't know what that is, that is the Day of Atonement that we see in the Old Testament that's still celebrated today by Jews. So, why is the author of Hebrews saying Jesus is our great high priest? And how is that comforting? Well, Jesus being our high priest, he does the same work, but better. You see, the earthly high priest brings you to the temple, he goes into the holy place, he does the work, and then he comes out and he declares forgiveness. But it's all here on earth. You see, the author of the Hebrew says Jesus passed through the heavens. The difference is that Jesus Christ does the work of the high priest in heaven. He is God. He can forgive sins, you see. The high priest and what he did was a, almost like a reenactment of the true thing that Christ did in heaven. The best way I can put it is Think about movies and a trailer. When a movie's going to come out, they release like a really hype trailer. And you watch it and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for this to come out. You know, a lot of the Marvel people in here know what I'm talking about. But when the movie comes out and you knock on your friend's door and you're like, hey, let's go watch the movie. And he's like, nah, I'm just going to watch the trailer again. The trailer's lit. That doesn't make sense. No, we're here to watch the movie. The whole point of the trailer is the point of the movie. Not to sit at home watching the trailer. And it's the same in terms of Jesus Christ. Why continue going to that system that's pointing to Christ who actually did the work? 
And the thing, too, is we have to put this in context. This comfort that the author of the Hebrews is providing, the context around it is people who are losing their property, people who are going to jail, people who are being ousted from their community. So you can see how tempting it would be to want all of that back. So you go back to that old system. But the author of the Hebrews is saying, don't go back. Why would you go back to the trailer? Why would you go back to that when the real drama of redemption has occurred? And so that's why you cling to Christ. You, you, don't hold, you hold on to him. You see. But how does this ultimately comfort us? It's like, oh, this is great. This is cool. Highbrow theology. Good job. This is so necessary for the Christian walk. You see, when you understand that Jesus Christ has the power to go to heaven and forgive you in the presence of God and to intercede for you on your behalf, your salvation is secure. Do you sometimes fear that when you pray, God doesn't hear you? Are you afraid that God looks at you in your sinful state in disgust? It's because you don't believe that Jesus Christ is your high priest and he's forgiven you in heaven. See, when you know that, when that's secure, then you know you can boldly come to Jesus. You can, you can go to God. You don't have to hold yourself back. He has forgiven you. That's the beauty of it. See, in our time, we may not be tempted to go back to this sacrificial system. It's not even a thing anymore. I'm not going to get into that. But we have other temptations that we want to go back to. Maybe there's a sin that you're turning to in your life that you think is going to give you that comfort. You remember those times when, you know, you, before you were a Christian, when you used to just binge watch movies, and you're like, you know what, this is, this is great. I feel good. And then you come to Jesus, and you're praying, and you're like, oh, God, I don't feel like you're hearing me. I'm just going to go back to watching movies, because that's when I actually felt something. Don't do it. Don't do it. You see, I said, like I said earlier, it's a bad comforter. The movie did not die for you in your place. The movie does not come alongside you in your trials. It doesn't care about you. It will eat you up. But Jesus, his heart is for you. Jesus bore your sins. He takes it on, dies in your place. You can't come to him and, and say, you don't care about me. The scars prove it. They prove it. He loves you. If you're thinking of abandoning the promises of Jesus today for the fleeting pleasures of sin, talk to one of us today. Ask one of us, and we will share the hope of Christ and pray with you that you may see the glory of his salvation and that you would walk away from that sin. Walk away from all the horrible comforters that exist on this planet and come to the real one. See, the truth of our salvation, this truth of what, he, of what Jesus did as our high priest, it's the springboard that allows us to enjoy a relationship with him because we know we're secure. And you cannot know God apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot receive his special comfort apart from Christ. And that brings us to our second point. Christ is our comforter. Verse 15, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus has compassion on us because he experiences firsthand the weaknesses of human flesh and still did not sin, not even once. I think when we read the word sympathy, our tendency is to think, like giving someone like a pouty face, you know, I had a really hard day, oh, I'm sorry. But the word is so much stronger than that here. Think about it as suffering. Jesus suffers with you. As the King James puts it, he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's touched with the feeling. He's gripped. So how does Jesus comfort us? Well, I want to explain a little bit what comfort is and what it means. For a lot of us, we may think comfort is an emotional state. That's kind of why I liked comfort food, because when I ate pizza or when I had a pint of ice cream, like you feel better, right? And it just feels kind of good, at least for me. (laughs) But that's not actually comforting. That's just feeling different. No, comfort has two aspects that we're going to talk about. One is relief. That's the taking away of the pain. When you comfort your friend who has gone through a loss, the first thing you're trying to do is take away the pain. And you wish you could, don't you? You wish you could just take it out. But we're humans. And so we try words or we try to do things to help take away the pain. And then the next aspect of it is encouragement. You're trying to replace the pain with hope. You don't want to just leave them just without pain. You want to give them hope. And so comfort is relief and encouragement. We're going to see how Jesus does that for us in five different ways. Five ways that Jesus comforts us. First, Jesus became like us. It says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. Some of you caught the double negative there. He is able to sympathize with us. But why? Because he took on flesh. He experienced mundane life. Aaron preached about this a a while ago, but Jesus used the bathroom. He got hungry. He had to choose clothing. He dealt with traffic. He dealt with taxes and buying food and all those normal, mundane human things. And it was humbling for him. See, when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come as a Caesar, as a great king, as someone who would crush his enemies physically under his feet. He was a poor carpenter. He had no place to lay his head. He was homeless. He did this to experience humanity in a way where he can sympathize with us all. This should relieve us of our fears that God doesn't care about the little things. God cares about paper cuts. Did you know that? God cares about all the little fears you have in life. Waking up and dealing with traffic waking up and maybe dealing with an angry coworker or a moody boss. Jesus experienced all those little things, so he cares about them. And more than that, it should encourage us to live faithfully knowing that he cares about us and wishes us well. So when you're at work and your boss is moody, and instead of kind of clapping back like we like to do now, you Receive them with a soft word. You obey humbly. See, 
God cares about that. And we shouldn't be encouraged to do that because when we're disrespected, it's not like God turns a blind eye. He cares and he suffers with us. Number two, he understands us. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So it's not just that Jesus did the mundane things of life. It's more than that. He did not, he did not withhold any painful human experience imaginable. Not poverty, not hunger, not betrayal, not even temptation. Think about it. He was unjustly murdered. He's, the, he's God. And when he chooses to come down, he faces the worst of the worst. He was tortured, betrayed, left alone to die, and experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. This is the Jesus who was rich in heaven, but did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, and therefore emptied himself and became poor for our sake. The Bible describes him as a man of sorrows, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. If you uh, know or are a trauma victim, you know that trauma victims are gripped by others who have gone through what they've gone through. If you've gone through some sort of abuse and you meet someone who's going through the same thing, your heart is gripped for them. You just wish you can take it away. Well, Jesus is gripped by our condition. When you're betrayed by someone, think about Jesus being betrayed by Judas, who walked with him for three years, claimed to love him, claimed to know him, but sold him for some silver. See, Jesus understands that. So when you mourn that, Jesus suffers with you. This should offer us relief because we trust that Jesus is moved by our conditions, understands that our lives can be painful because he himself experienced it. Further, it gives us encouragement because we know that if he experienced our pain, he will act favorably towards us because he understands. Number three, Jesus is patient with us. He is merciful. He gives help to the helpless. It says here that he's able to suffer with us. You see, Jesus does not meet you and me with anger and distaste. Maybe that's what you expect. You sin, you do something wrong, you speak disrespectfully to someone, or you give in to a lust or some other temptation, and you think, well, he's mad now. I've made him angry. Now I've got to go away, and he's going to get me. I struggle with a guilty conscience. And so in many ways... When I do something wrong, I'm looking out for every way God's going to get me. Is it here? Is it there? What's going to happen today? How is he going to penalize me? But that's not how the Bible talks about our relationship with the Lord. We read from Joel 2 earlier. Um, but part of that is one of the most quoted passages in Scripture. Uh, if you want to read it, it's in Exodus 34, 6. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's his heart for you. That's Jesus. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in love. That's his heart. Even on your worst day, that's his heart for you. 
He's like this, not because sin is not grievous, not because he just throws it under the rug and says, don't worry about it, we won't deal with it, but because his mercy is greater than our sins. That's how merciful he is. This should relieve us of the worry that Jesus is just a cold taskmaster or a drill sergeant who can't wait to shove your faults in your face. That's not what he's like. He doesn't shove your sins in your face. He dies for them. And then he comes up and, and ra- is raised from the dead in glory to bring you to God. That's his heart for you. And it should encourage us as well to freely give ourselves to him because he will not respond harshly to us. That encouragement that he will, that he will deal kindly and merciful with us, that's the invitation to come to him. He is not going to reject you. He's not going to cast you out. Number four, Jesus was tempted like us. It says here, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are. In Hebrews 2.18 it says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted. See, Jesus was tempted, but without sin. He also suffered in that temptation. I think sometimes, at least for me, One of the ways I looked at this passage is I thought it just means that Jesus was presented with an opportunity to sin. And he was like, nah, I'm good. He just goes his merry way. No, he suffered. He felt the weight of temptation. When he was hungry, he felt the pangs in his stomach. When he was betrayed, he felt the brokenheartedness of that. Just like you do. Just like I do. The difference is that those things entice us to disobey. When we feel brokenhearted, we want revenge. But Jesus did not disobey his father. Instead, he obeyed his every will. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan told him, make bread out of these stones. If you're the son of God, you can do this, right? See, in that moment, Jesus felt the weight of hunger. He'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It's not as if Jesus was just chilling. He felt it. But he said, man shall not live on bread alone. He obeyed his his father. And he remained obedient because he trusted that God would provide his needs. He didn't need to bow down to Satan for those needs. His father loved him and he was going to take care of him. Remember that your father is going to take care of you. Don't bow the knee to Satan. Don't bow the knee to your flesh. Don't bow the knee to the world. Bow the knee to your king because he will provide for you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I think this is a great way to think about this temptation. Think about a man walking against the wind. The more you walk, the more resistance you face and the harder it becomes. Most of us give up pretty quickly when we're walking against wind. You're just like, nah, I can't. This is too much. So you sit down. But Jesus continues and walks through the resistance. So he felt the true weight of sin more than we ever will. We give in like this sometimes. But Jesus didn't. And so he felt a weight of sin that you and I never felt and yet was obedient in love. The example of this, I think, is the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was scared. He cried tears of blood. And he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup. 
but not my will, but yours be done. He obeyed his father, even through that torment. This should relieve us of our fear of being misunderstood and being looked down upon by Jesus, as if he's ashamed to call us our brothers and sisters. When you sin, he doesn't look at you and go, oh, man, again, like this guy. <laughs> you know, I'm not even. Um, <laughs> that's not how he looks upon us. And it should encourage us to ask him for deliverance since he experienced temptations like we do, yet without sin. He understands and more than that wants to help you come alongside you. And that brings us to number five. Jesus helps us in our sufferings and temptations. He doesn't just experience them and that's it. And then it's like, okay, look, I feel you, I understand. No, he helps us. Hebrews 2.18, he's able to help those who are being tempted help he has compassion when he sees us miserable he is moved to come to our aid he is moved to action because he knows what it feels like to have gone through the situations you're going through it grips him when you're struggling with sin and 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 you're asking god to help you sometimes we think okay I think, I think what God wants me to do is just f- make a list of things to fix and I'll fix them up and then we're good. You know, behavior modification. I'm not saying behavior modification is a bad thing. But if that's your hope and st- struggling with temptation, it's not a good hope. That's you. That's you relying on your strength. I like the way um, <clears throat> an author, his name is John Owen, put it this way. He said, I shall be bold to say that this one thing of expecting relief from Christ on the basis of his mercy as our high priest will be a better and speedier means of destroying your lust and the disorder of your soul than all the most rigid efforts at self-mortification that the sons of men engage in. In other words, Christ's help and strengthening in your fight against sin will procure holiness for you in a way that simple life hacks and behavior modification will never do. You have to come to him. You have to ask him to come alongside you. He is alongside you. Don't ignore that. Don't white knuckle it. Don't pull up your bootstraps. Ask him for help, and he will help you, and he will strengthen you. When he sees you tempted to sin, or when he sees you in a trial, when he sees you brokenhearted, hungry, whatever the case may be, he always provides the way of escape. Even though we may not take it, And when you cry for help, he is there. He's not a bystander, but he is the help itself. This should relieve us of our self-sufficiency and this white-knuckle mentality that Christ just wants us to figure it out. Clean yourself up first, and then you can come to me. No, that's wrong. Be relieved of that. Take that weight off today. Take it off. He's not asking you to clean yourself up first. He's saying, come to me to be clean. It should encourage us to take our filth to him because he is the only hope who can clean us. He's the only one who can make us holy. How is this all comforting? Well, we should be relieved to know that Jesus tenderly walks with us in our trials so we are not alone in our sufferings. He's human like us. He was tempted like us. He understands us. 
And we should be encouraged that Jesus is moved to help us and can help us as we traverse the trials of life. He suffers with us. He is patient with us. He helps us in our suffering. This is our, this is our great high priest. He does the work. <laughs> now, I think <clears throat> having walked with the Lord for a few years, I think I've seen different types of responses to these truths. I've come up with four, four typical responses that I've seen. I fall in many of these categories, but I wanted to talk about them because I understand that we live on the ground level. And so I may say these things and they may, maybe they're not reaching your heart right now because maybe you fall in one of these categories. Number one, I call cynical Charlie. Cynical Charlie is the one who you come to and, and he says, well, this sounds good, but I've prayed before and I didn't feel any better. How can you say Jesus is our comforter if when I pray, I don't feel a difference? Cynical Charlie lacks relief or encouragement. Can't find it. Then there's Platitude Patty. Platitude Patty, when you tell her about the comfort of Christ, says, Amen, sir. Jesus is very comforting. And then you may ask, well, how have you experienced his comfort? Well, I just know he loves me. And I don't have to worry about anything. He loves me. He's there for me. But when you, when you get to the root of it, you start to notice that those platitudes are designed to distract from the fact that they feel that everything is going okay, and so they don't really need a comforter. When things are good, do you really need comfort? So you have to ask, is Jesus really your comforter? This person has a false sense of relief or encouragement. Then you have Orthodox Oliver. Orthodox Oliver says, of course Jesus is comforting. It's in the scripture. Just read it. Hebrews 4.14, verse through 16. Here's a Spurgeon quote about it. It's so good. <laughs> but if that person is honest, the head knowledge has not sunk into the heart. He doesn't spend time wrestling with God for comfort. He doesn't feel the presence of Jesus in his trials. Typically, this person will try to fix their own problems and then rejoice in the outcome, giving Jesus credit, even though they had no real trust in him in the process. This person has a fake relief or fake encouragement. And then there's ashamed Ashley. This person has let the guilt of their sin or weakness drive them away from God. Because they believe they're unsavable. They think they're irredeemable. God won't deal kindly with me, they say. I don't find comfort in Jesus. He's going to be harsh with me when he finds out what I did. You see, in their mind, Jesus is the taskmaster, the drill sergeant, who one day will pay them back. For them, relief or encouragement is impossible. What is the solution? If you're one of these four people, or if you're a mixture or all of them, believe me, I've been in all four. I've been there. What's the solution to that? I think there's a common thread between these four characters. And it's this. We don't like to be needy. It's really hard for us to be needy. We like to be self-sufficient. But what does Jesus say to us? Jesus talks about a childlike faith. What does that mean? Is he saying you need to be immature in your faith? No. That, that wouldn't make sense. 
Think about children for a second. Children are not ashamed to ask their parents for things. They're happy to be needy. And they trust their parents will provide whatever they need. Dad, mom, can I get an ice cream sandwich? Dad, mom, can I go play in the park? And they just ask. And they're okay with being needy. They know they can't go to the park. They need the parents to drive them. And so to some degree, we don't see our father that way. We don't come to ask him. Instead, we're like, I'll figure it out. Thanks. You see, your problem, it's not that you're too weak. It's that you're too strong. Don't come to God with your strength like he's going to raise you up for how strong you are. No. No, it's the, it's the other way around. It's when you recognize your weakness. That's when, that's when he builds you up, when you recognize your weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, when you shy away from God and you try to find external ways to fix your problems, rather than going to the one who's suffering with you, who has open arms, who's brought you to God and given you peace with God, you're showing that you want to do it in your own strength. You don't want to be needy. But friends, that's the only way to comfort. That's why Verse 16, cling to Christ. You need to be needy. You need to cling to him. Let's read verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. He tells them to draw near because our tendency is to run away. But the answer is to draw near. You know, if you, were, if you were dirty and you had a bunch of mud and slop on you, how silly would it be for you to just try to take it off with your own hands? No, you go to the water and you wash it off. It's the same way with our Heavenly Father. Stop trying to clean your own slop. It's not going to work. It's just going to go to another place. But Jesus can actually wash you clean. So we need to be needy. So many times we think the Christian life is about being strong. But in reality, it's about facing our weakness, knowing that Jesus is sufficient. What did Paul ask Jesus to do? 2 Corinthians. He said, take away my thorn in the flesh. He begged him three times. And what did Jesus respond to him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, that's Jesus' power, is made perfect in your weakness. You see, we are really weak, if we're honest with ourselves. We need help fighting sin. We need help paying our bills. We need help gaining wisdom. We need help growing as followers of Christ. We need help getting up in the morning. We live on borrowed air. We are needy. And I'm not trying to insult you. I'm in there too. And if you think I'm just making this up, read with me the words of John 15:5. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Have you realized how needy you are? Do you rely on your own strengths to get you through life? Or do you hope in just things working out for you? 
Or do you run to the worldly comforts to do the things for you? We need to be needy. When you're weak and you realize you need God's blessing, you can begin to experience the comfort that Christ offers you. So maybe now you're saying to me, okay, I'm needy. I'm needy. What do I do? Where do I go? Draw near. We draw near to God in prayer. When when you feel the weight of your neediness and you cry out, that's the response. Cry out and say, Lord, help me. I need you. He has an open door policy. Did you know that? He doesn't shut his door and lock it and just you got you got to sign in for office hours or whatever. No, he has an open door policy. You can reach him whenever and wherever you are. How do you draw near confidently though? You're, you know, you might be confused. You said I need to be needy, but now you got to say I got to draw near confidently. That doesn't make sense. Your confidence is not in you. It's in what Jesus has done. Why can you draw near confidently and be needy at the same time? Because when you draw near, you're drawing near knowing that God's love for you is secure because of what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus' sympathy is our invitation to receive mercy and grace from God. We will never be rejected by God. Dare I even say, we have the same likelihood, if you're in Christ today, you have the same likelihood of being rejected by God as Christ does if you are truly born again. Don't doubt your Savior. Now, if you're not a Christian and you've been hearing me talk about this comforter and you've been relying on your worldly comforts and you've been trying to fight death and prolong the inevitable, but you're starting to kind of see that stuff kind of simmer away. You start to see the futility of it. Good. I'm glad. Now let me invite you to submit to his high priestly role. Let him clean you. Let him change you. Then you can draw near with this boldness. Don't go on in in your rebellion. Stop chasing after the things of the world. Stop trading in the creator for the creature. There was a man who lived once who had it all. And this is how he described it. He described it as a striving after the wind. If you're confused by that, after the service, go outside, catch wind, bring in here and show it to me. You will quickly see how utterly hopeless that task is. Now let me invite you to believe in Christ's work on the cross. You see, God made a way for you to be saved. He gave up his son who lived a perfect life. Jesus bore our sin, died on a cross, took the wrath of God in our place because of our rebellion, because we keep trading in the creator for creatures. And then God raised him from the dead. And Jesus ascended into heaven. He passed through the heavens and he sat down at the Father's right hand in victory. All who believe in this gospel will be saved. And you can believe this today and experience the comforts of Christ and his saving work for you. Don't you want a real comforter? I know I do. I think we all do, if we're honest. Well, here he is. Christians, this glorious news of Christ being our comforter, we need to revel in that. We need to be excited about that. 
you know, the Hebrew Christians, they needed an answer to a certain question. The question was, what is Jesus doing for me today? I know you told me to believe in his work on the cross, and I did that already. But then I became a Christian, and now my entire life is destroyed. So what is he doing for me right now? Well, the answer is, he, as your high priest, is here to comfort you. He's here to give you true comfort. That's now. That's for today. Are you dried up inside? Do you need that comfort? Go to your father. He's there. How does he help us? In the passage, the passage says, receive mercy and find grace. Receive mercy is help to the helpless. See, he promises to be patient with us. He promises not to be vindictive and penal. He promises to alleviate our pain. He promises to deal with the harsh ways of the world, the flesh, the devil, even when it's our fault. And then it says, find grace. That's receiving God's favor. So he promises we will find his favor upon us. He promises we will find our best interests in his heart. He promises that he is working all things for our good and his glory, Romans 8.28. And he promises we will find a friend who looks upon us with care and kindness. Um, I love this quote uh, by... <clears throat> Uh, if you ever read the book Gentle and Lowly, you would know. This quote goes, Consider your own life. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us, solidarity. We have a great comforter. We do. But again, I'll ask, what's your comforter? I ask you to consider that question. I've also explained the glories of the comfort of Jesus, how great of a savior he is, how great of a comforter he is. Don't trade him in for a worthless idol. Whatever situation you're in, God will extend you a hand for a time of need. I can't fight this sin, you may say. Come to God. I can't deal with all these betrayals. Come to God. My flesh won't allow me to pray. Come to God. My property is being plundered. Draw near. I'm being put in prison. Draw near. I'm being rejected by my entire community. Draw near. A lot of us really love missionary stories. Like, people like Adonai and Jetson and Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And we ask, like, how do they do that, right? Wow, that's so cool. How did they do that? How did they, you know, <clears throat> they get the missions rolling in, in the places that they served in? But I think the question we should ask ourselves is, why did they choose the hard route? I think the answer is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. They believe this verse. 
they believe that if they draw near to God, they will receive comforts way better than our modern ones. Better than tax benefits, better than central AC, better than heating, better than plumbing, better than vehicles, better than promotions, better than raises, better than supermarkets, better than pizza, better than all these things. The comforts of Jesus Christ is greater than that. It's not that they're super Christians. It's that they moved in faith, fearing, of course, at times, but in faith, nonetheless, they believed this verse. God is for you. He's not against you. The circumstance is not the sovereign. God is the sovereign. So who is your comforter? What is the thing that assuages your conscience? Is it sex? Is it alcohol? Is it games? Is it money? Is it drive? Is it career? Is it possessions? Is it worldly praise? What is it? What comforts are you allowing to wreak havoc on your soul for a false sense of security? Are you one of the four people I mentioned? Cynical Charlie, Platitude Patty, Orthodox Oliver, Ashamed Ashley? I've been there. I've been through all of those. Maybe you're a mixture of some. Regardless, recognize your neediness. Come to the throne of grace. Experience true comfort that Christ gives you. If you want a practical tip on how to recognize these idols in your life, go home today, make a list of activities or things you use to cope with a hard work day or a tough situation or anxiety about the future or making a difficult decision. Do you turn on the TV and veg out for an evening? Do you bust out a pint of ice cream and turn on your favorite Spotify playlist or podcast? Do you scroll on social media for a few hours, living vicariously through the people on your timeline? Do you sleep it off? You see, none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but they need to be put in their place. I'm not saying this to hurt you or embarrass you. I'm right there. I'm I'm talking to myself in so many ways. I want to see you liberated. I want to see me liberated from the destructive idols that hold us back from drawing near to our precious Savior. I want to call up the worship team. Whatever thing you think will give you comfort in life, Jesus is better. You can draw near perpetually and it will never hurt you. You will always find mercy and grace. Your status with God is secure and eternal. Unlike all the other things that we trade God in for, the Lord has our best interests in his heart and will never lead us to destruction. Those other things will destroy you. The Lord will restore you. So I want to end this way. Believe that the comforts of Christ is greater than the comforts of the world. You can take that to the bank and cash it. The author of this text is trying to comfort the Hebrew Christians by showing them that although you might not see Jesus in the flesh, his comforts are real and he's working for you. And he is for you. See, the author builds this all the way to chapter 11, which we'll get there soon. And that's when we're going to see the beauty and the power of faith. So I want to leave you with the example of Moses. Moses forsook the comforts of Pharaoh's house because the comfort of God is much greater than that. This is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
Moses preferred the reproach of Christ. That is to say, the persecution that came with faith to the treasures of Egypt. Moses chose rather to be needy and to come to his father to fill him instead of filling himself with fleeting delights. Let us then consider the comforts of Christ greater than the comforts of this world. And let us draw near to him in our neediness, boldly expecting him to deliver on his promise. All you who are needy, cling to Christ and he will give you ultimate comfort. Jesus is greater than anything, so don't let go of him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much because you are the great comforter. God, our souls are parched many times with trials and sin struggles, but you are the comforter. You say that if we come to you, we will be nourished, we will be cared for, we will be loved. You will walk alongside of us. You will suffer with us. You do suffer with us. And I pray that we will see the truth of that and we will come to you boldly in love and humility, in our neediness, in our brokenness, because you and only you can make us whole. I pray that this message would go from the, from the head to the heart for me and for everyone here. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.